0: So, we could take this passage this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to go from 1 all the way down to verse 10. And we could do an individual sermon on each verse. We could actually do an individual sermon on different words within a single verse. And so, this morning is going to be an attempt to keep uh, what we have decided to do with Peter an overview, a big picture and try to give some clarity on the terms. I mean, Peter's going to launch us into some some deep meaning Old Testament pictures. And so I want to encourage especially our young people, uh, when you start hearing these words, don't get distracted. Okay, stay with it. If you have to draw a picture of the word, okay, as long as you're still listening and just say, okay, why did Peter use that difficult picture? Or why is he why is he using an allusion back to these things? Cuz he did it for a purpose. And he did it to people who are suffering and he did it to people who are foreigners and exiles from a dispersion throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So these symbols, these allusions, these references all have meaning and I don't want us to miss that this morning. I'll try to to keep you along and then hopefully what this will do when we are finished, it will encourage you to go back and... um, give you a desire to look into this even deeper on your own study. Let's pray for our children as they were dismissed that that through their lesson, uh, God would open their eyes and that they would grow in the grace and knowledge of him. Let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for the privilege of gathering in your name on this first day of a new week, evidence of your grace and your mercy to us, Thank you for the privilege of having a copy of your word in our hands, as believers of having your Holy Spirit indwelling us, the joy that is ours to fellowship with this local body, because we do all confess to have one foundation, that is Jesus Christ. We pray for our children and the teachers of our children right now, that through their lesson, they would begin to understand and grasp and believe Your Word. That they would know Jesus as their deliverer and rescuer, their Savior. That they would grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and fear Him and love Him and serve Him faithfully until they see You face to face. Lord, help us now. Give us illumination of this portion of Your Word. May we be sensitive to Your Spirit's working of encouragement and building up, which also involves rebuke and correcting those things that are in our lives that are wrong. Lord, help us to be clothed with humility to acknowledge where we have gotten out of alignment with Your Word. And may we grow together as your people, as this priesthood that you will talk about in 1 Peter 2. Help us to understand. Remove distractions from us now so that your word would sink deep into our heart and have an effect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 2. We're just going to read the entire passage. Follow along with me if you're using one of our Bibles. You'll find this portion on page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 1. And it's going to begin with a hinge word, which is going to let you know that it is connected to ideas that have already previously been written. 1 Peter 2 verse 1. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Now he's going to start quoting and stringing together these Old Testament texts. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Build up, like infants, like living stones. He's got these strange metaphors that start to come to the surface. Here's the big picture of Peter as we continue through the series. The reality of present suffering, which I think most of us can relate with, even though we're not in the exact scenario of Peter's readers, original readers. The reality of present suffering and our hope in the reality of a future glory. That's where we're at. Peter addresses them. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Temporary residents. These are not permanent settlers. As Matt already indicated, we have a dual citizenship. One is temporary. The other is eternal. So these are exiles. An exile finds himself in a foreign context. Or you can interpret it pilgrims. And a pilgrim is someone that is on a quest living for another place and another time. A place spiritually that they have never seen in a time that has not happened yet. So this is all going to demand faith as pilgrims and exiles. We haven't mentioned this yet in detail, but this letter was probably written just before July A.D. 64. And that is when Nero, probably, most likely, it was Nero who burned down the city. He had a lust for building. There was no more room to build, so he decided, history says, that he would burn it to the ground so he could build larger and better. And history also records how he went forward and most likely then blamed the Christians for setting the fires. Just to put that into context, 30 years before Peter writes this letter, approximately 30 years, Stephen was martyred. Shortly after that, Paul was converted. It's the Apostle Paul and Peter who are ministering now together. Those are the two key personalities in the book of Acts. It is suggested that Peter may have witnessed the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul. He's writing this to a dispersed people approximately 22 years Before this, James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. Fifteen years before the writing of this letter, the Jews were expelled from Rome. In 64, Nero launched a persecution. During that time period, both Peter and Paul were executed. And then 16 years later, Domitian, the emperor, developed emperor worship and led a severe persecution for believers. So that really is the, the world around which, before, during, and after, in which Peter writes this letter. Present suffering, future glory. Now, if we just cover some ground of where we've been, verses 13 to 21, in light of our privileged position, we are born again. We've, we've been born again by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the precious blood. We can live in confidence, holiness, and the fear of God. Verses 22 to 25, because of our privileged position, we can love one another fervently out of a pure heart without any hypocrisy. Because of our privileged position. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. Because of our privileged position, we can put away relational sins as we are nourished by Christ. And then secondly, verses 4 to 10, we can live out our new identity. Or we might say this, um, we should be who we already are. And sometimes we don't live in alignment with our identity. And so what do we do when that happens? What do we do when we start to look and act like the world or we become isolated and uh, extremely independent or the closest of our relationships? We're not really interested in serving the believers here, but our closest relationships are actually outside of the community of faith of which we have joined. When that happens, what do we do? Does Peter speak into that at all in this section? And he does. So first of all, because of our privileged position, I want you to look at the first three verses. Believers put away relational sins as they are nourished by the Lord. Or really simple. Here's the picture Peter uses. Be like infants. And that's the picture. The second one, be like living stones. Okay, so one of those images is clear. The other one, living stones, we'll get to that. Okay, verse, verse one. So... Put away. This refers back to there was a digression that Peter took, an inspired digression, but he took a digression and that word so is actually going to connect back to chapter one, verse twenty two. Look at verse twenty two of chapter one. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, right? The gospel is a command. Repent and believe. For a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 1 of chapter 2 explains in more detail what is involved in loving one another earnestly. So you need to put away something. You need to give it up. You need to get rid of. What are we getting rid of? What is it? If I'm going to love without hypocrisy, if I'm going to love genuinely, if I'm going to love earnestly, if I'm going to love you that way, you're going to love me that way, You're going to love this side that way. What does that look like? What does that entail? Earnestly, fervently, genuinely. Okay, so you're going to put off attitudes and behaviors which harm community. That's exactly what Peter is addressing. Because later on, as living stones, we are built up into one spiritual house, one building, So, if we're going to love one another that way and interact in community that way, genuine love requires ridding our life of attitudes and behaviors that destroy community. The idea of put off is used by Paul in Ephesians. It's used in other places. And it's used also of taking off clothes or dirty clothes. Have you ever been in work clothes? And they just stink. And they're soiled. And you don't even want to be near people. You don't even really want to be near family. I remember one time when we were on deputation, uh, a gentleman allowed us to stay in a single wide trailer uh, with our three children as long as I did some work on the farm. And so I learned how to drive a farm all tractor and I learned how to uh, drive a John Deere putt-putt and learned how to bush hog, but it was that one day when I had to shovel out the manure that was caked a couple feet thick, that I put my boots on and my jeans, and I went out and shoveled, and you know, if you've ever done that, you shovel it and all the steam comes up, right, and and basically all your senses go numb, which is a gift, a real gift, but not numb to your family, right, or to others that are around you, so you get Initially, you're trying to be real careful, right? And then a little bit of splattering, You're like, ah, no, not my jeans. And then then you don't care. So you come out, and what you want to do, all you're thinking about is not sitting down and eating. No. You're thinking about taking off those clothes and getting rid of them and washing. That's it. Put away these things. Put away this filth. What is the filth? He talks about. Look at verse 1. All malice. That's evil or wickedness. Including not only harmful intent, but also any actions harmful to others. It's the opposite of virtue. Put it away. And if you've chosen as your close friends, those who are described by this, you may need to put them away too. He who walks With wise, the wise shall be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Put away all malice. Put away, verse 1, all deceit, trickery or deception or falsehood that harms others. It is bent on harming other people through causing suspicion or doubt or something that is deceptive. He comes back and he says in verse 1, End hypocrisy. That's the masking of this isn't just trying to be someone you're not. I mean, that's that's entailed in this concept, but it's the masking of inward evil by an outward show of righteousness. It's the masking of ill intent. While being perceived as taking the high road. It's purposefully trying to hurt others while giving everyone else the perception that you're trying to help them. You've got to put that away. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23-28, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus told them in Mark twelve fifteen, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Have you ever felt wrongly tested? Have you ever felt entrapped? Have you ever felt entrapped in a Christian culture, set up for failure? Jesus asks, why do you put me to the test? Why are you testing me to get me to fail in front of other people? Of course, the Lord could not, but he, he identified their hypocrisy. Peter uses this word, and Peter very well knew experientially what hypocrisy was. Galatians 2 records this before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, other men, the Judaizers, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And Peter was rebuked to the face by the Apostle Paul. And now Peter tells us, you want to love genuinely, you want to love earnestly, you want to live in community, in a Christ-like way, you need to put away all malice and all envy and all slander and hypocrisy. That's what he says in verse 1. He talks about envy. What is envy anyway? Envy is the twisted response towards others when they have something you want a godly response is to rejoice with them to thank the lord with them not to become evil in your thoughts and negative as you envy them the opposite of envy is rejoicing with others being content being thankful for the good which comes to them is that your reaction Well, it is with my friends, but, you know, some of the other Christians, I rejoice when they fall. Okay, that's ungodly, right? That's that's more of a description of Satan than it is of God. And then verse one, all slander, any speech which harms or is intended to harm another person's status or reputation. So how do we how do we conclude all this? If we're loving genuinely, we're not backbiting. If we're loving earnestly. We're not slandering. If we're loving the way Christ loved us, we're not hypocrites. We're not, we're not intending to harm while masking spirituality with a plastic smile. There's no room for that in a community that is living and serving together. And Peter is very zealous about this because Peter did not always fall in line with what he's teaching here. And he's admonishing us like newborn infants. Look at verse 2. Okay, so, so what does that look like? Okay, so to put all these things away, look at verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. My wife and I have experienced six infants in our home. Like many of you, you've experienced infants in your home Uh, okay news alert infants cry when they're hungry right not that's not a debatable point they just do um have you ever tried to reason with a baby right oh come on not already you just ate well they don't even speak english yet or comprehend but here you are trying to reason with them right or you can try to distract the ravenous little human only to buy yourself a few minutes Because then what's going to happen? Cry. Hungry babies cry. And the only thing that is going to satisfy and make that little one content is what? Milk. It's exactly what Peter's getting at here. What Peter is drawing out is the idea of instinctive, eager, and frequent hunger. A metaphor easily understood by any parent whose sleep has been interrupted by a hungry infant. Now, Peter says he's going to apply that. See, he doesn't think the the, the believers dispersed throughout Asia Minor are infants, but they're born again, right? He already talked about that in chapter 1. And as new born-again believers, there's a different desire. So he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up. When you are properly nourished by the right things, you grow. So what is it? What was in your diet last week that gave evidence that you desired, you hungered, you longed for God? What moments were captured? What words were said? What actions were observed that showed that you long, you hunger for Jesus Christ? And it's not just his word, it's a very difficult word that Peter uses here for spiritual. It's only used one other time. That's in Romans 12:1, where we offer to God spiritual sacrifices. Because he uses the common word for spiritual at other places in this letter. This one's different. And it connects it back to the Logos, the Word, but it's more than just the written Word. There is actually a hungering and a desire and a pursuit that is supernatural, that is after Jesus Christ, the Word. He is the one that nourishes. Yes, through His Word, but by His Spirit and through a relationship. It's instinctive, it's eager, it's frequent. And it results in ethical transformation. The word pure, when this is applied to objects like wheat, has the sense of pure, unadulterated. And so the spiritual milk in view here is free from all impurities. It is pure and holy and desirable. The milk metaphor is further helped in verse 3. Look at verse 3. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to quote Psalm 34. He's going to quote Psalm 34, verse 8. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Again, he incorporates that sense. It's a unique sense of all human senses because it actually involves internalizing something and digesting it. There's actually a, a voluntary placing inside so there is nourishment received Remember Psalm 34 where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you remember the situation? David in seeking asylum from King Saul goes down to Gath where the Philistines were where he had already defeated Goliath and he's standing there and they reject him. He's a stranger. He's a foreigner. He's an exile and he is in exile. And he goes down there and and, and he realizes that the king of Gath is not going to accept him. So he plays the madman and he runs off and he goes into the hill country and he finds a cave with his men. And it's probably there or shortly after he pens Psalm 34. So Peter has that in his mind to his original readers who are in a strange place. They're exiles, they're foreigners, they're rejected. But what did David find and what will the recipients of Peter's letter find as they live among Roman unbelieving people up in Asia Minor. Acceptance with who? Acceptance with God. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, it's real, taste it, experience it, internalize it, be satisfied with Christ. The Lord of Psalm 34 eight, Yahweh, is here, Jesus Christ. And before we transition into the next section, ask yourself this question, is that true of you? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Do you love like this? Do you love earnestly? Do you love genuinely? Even those who are not like you, even those who irritate you, even those with whom you have almost nothing in common except that they too profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Are you satisfied in Christ this morning? Or perhaps your taste has been deadened by sin, your growth stunted by tasting the wrong things. Well, because of our privileged position, born again believers put away relational sins as they are nourished by the Lord. But we also embrace and live out our new identity as living stones. Look at the next section. Look at verse four. Because Peter, Peter now is going to explain their identity in the community into which they have been born again into. Look at verse four. As you come to him. As you draw near to him. And only believers enjoy the privilege once reserved only for priests in the Old Testament of drawing near to God. And we do so confidently in Christ. So here's the sense of this entire passage. Let's read it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. So as you Present participle continually draw near to him as you continually come to him. And now regularly through worship, you are here's the main verb built up. Okay, so here's the picture. Everybody looking up here real quick. As you draw to him, as you come to him continually, regularly moving towards him, because you can, because you're a priest and you can draw near not once a year. You can do this. Every day, every moment, as you are drawing near to him, now at your new birth, right? At new birth once, and now consistently through worship, you are being built up. How does that affect us as a church? Would you call this a healthy church if 10% of the membership of Highlands Baptist Church we're drawing near to God can we be built up if 10% are drawing near once at new birth and now regularly through worship and trust and obedience jesus says you are my friends if you do whatsoever i command you is it a healthy church and i don't know the percentages and i haven't done i haven't done interviews and i'm just using this by way of illustration but what if weren't drawing near. Let's let's reverse the percentage a little bit. And they chose to hang on to envy and malice and slander. Does that affect the community here? Absolutely. Does that affect our mission to this line of houses right here? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Peter is writing to believers who are suffering, who are living next to neighbors who are hostile. They are rejected. They are shamed. They are launching into severe persecution underneath Nero and then Domitian. And he is telling them, as you draw near to him, as you come to him, a living stone, so you're saved by Christ and now you're drawing near to Christ, He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, let's try to unpack these images quickly so we understand what he's talking about and so we can allow Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to speak into this household, this priesthood. This community. A living stone and living stones, verses 4 and 5. Confusing metaphor, because stones don't live. Pet rocks, this might be earth-shattering to someone, pet rocks don't really breathe, even if you put eyes on it and a smile, right? So what is he talking about? I can understand an infant. I was one. I don't remember it, but I was one. I've never been a stone, right? Right? Peter quotes three Old Testament, we'll call them stone prophecies, and applies them to Christ. He quotes Isaiah 28, 16 in verse 6, Psalm 118, 22 in verse 7. Jesus quoted Psalm 118, 22 in reference to himself as the stone. And then Peter quotes Isaiah 8, 14 in verse 8. What are stones used for, typically? Typically. In this day, what were stones used for? building. So you have a cornerstone which was very important to the cemetery of that building. Very important to to that. You have that foundation and now you want to square that building out. Stones are used for building projects and Peter announces Jesus is the living cornerstone of this entire building project. So what is God doing? God's building something. God has saved people. It's called a new birth. And they enter into a new humanity. And they live in a new community together. And they have a mission. They proclaim something. They proclaim the excellencies of God together. So you have this building stone as opposed to a dead stone or an idol You have Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, who is alive, and he is a living stone. And like him, we are, what does it say? Living stones. There is life. There is also a placement. If you were to order a load of stones, well, it would be more than one load, and you wanted to build a building out here on our field, um, you you could have the trucks come up and dump the stones all over the place, and then separate each stone by five feet. Is that a building? They're all on the ground five feet. So the idea here of a cornerstone and living stones and a spiritual house for a priesthood, for spiritual sacrifices, what does that suggest? We are connected to the living cornerstone. We have purpose as we are built together And the building only exists as we remain together. Peter uses three words. Rejected, chosen, and precious. Rejected, the world's view of Christ. Chosen and precious, the Father's view of Christ. Unregenerate builders find Christ unfit to build upon. Believers who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, find Him as our living cornerstone and therefore rejoice when we are built together as a spiritual house. Peter identifies Jesus in Acts 4, 11 to 12 as the stone rejected. Listen to what he says in a sermon. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's talking to the leaders of Israel. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation. See, that's what he's talking about. That's what this living stone is all about. It's about salvation. Okay. At the point of the forgiveness of sin and as we live this out together in community, salvation and there, is no, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's that stone prophecy being quoted in the context of Christ here. So you yourselves, look at that verse, you yourselves like living stones. So you have a close relationship with Jesus Christ and therefore by default you have a close relationship with other living stones. A living building, the church. The stones are not isolated and in disarray, uh, thrown about a field haphazardly, but they are brought together and they form a building referred to, look at the next phrase, a spiritual house. Verse 5. People's stones are used to build a living spiritual house. William Barclay. William Barclay has a little commentary set Almost all of them are light blue. Uh, What he does really well in there is he provides illustrations and Greek word studies. Uh, Some of his actual comments I don't recommend, but what William Barclay does very well is illustration and word studies. And when he came to this living house, he recounts a story that conveys a similar concept about Spartans. There was a Spartan king boasting boasting to a visiting monarch about the great walls around Sparta. And when the visiting monarch came and visited Sparta, he saw no walls. And he said, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? The Spartan king pointed to his army army, and he replied, these are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. And though Peter is not using this in the sense of military defense, what he is saying is that each Stone. Living stone. That's you. I mean, if I could just look out here and picture you as, not blocks, but living stone sitting there forming a building, a temple, a living temple. Every stone has a purpose. Every stone plays an important role in what's happening here. But if Satan can function as a wrecking ball and keep the stones disconnected, not jointed together, then we'll have a very difficult time accomplishing the mission he has given to the church. What is the mission? He's going to to start to capture that. As he says, you have a role to play in the spiritual house. Every stone has a part. And Paul's going to unpack that from 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 1 Corinthians 14. But he talks about this as a holy priesthood. So he's talking about the building now keeps a certain group of people. And we are now called priests. We have direct access to God because we are God's children. My children have direct access to me. So last night I'm studying, sitting there, they're going about their life, but at at, at the point they have a question or want to share something with me, um, I just hear this. And within, hopefully within a few seconds, they'll hear, come in. Okay, so what is that? They have direct access to me. Now, if, if I heard that last night and some of you walked in, that would have been startling, right? Because my office is in the back part of my bedroom and I've been there like all day and I had no idea you were coming. And if all of a sudden you peeked in, hey, can I talk to you? That'd be really weird, right? Um, why do my children get that privilege? And my wife doesn't even have to knock. And I don't have to knock when she's in there. What is is that picture? Direct access based upon what? Relationship, right? They get direct access to me, honestly, 24-7. They can, you know, and if it's 3 in the morning, they won't even knock, they'll just come in and kind of, you know, try not to startle you awake. They have direct access because of relationship. Folks, you are priests. What was once reserved for a priest, the high priest, one time a year, approaching God, entering into the Holy of Holies, is yours because of relationship. You are a child of the King. You are priests now offering spiritual sacrifices. Praying, serving, singing. These are just some of the worship sacrifices that we can bring. If we let this picture affect who we are as a church that we are a spiritual house we are a priesthood we have direct access to God because we are his children then our primary understanding of ourselves will not be as individuals now our culture ever since I was pronounced to be Stephen Lee Haefler the culture I have lived in since 1968 has shaped me to be highly individualistic. It's been reinforced in school. It's been reinforced in society. And so it's very difficult for us when we, when we read this to allow our thinking to go back to what Israel would have understood by way of community. When they thought about themselves, it wasn't necessarily standing out from the group. It was how to be an effective part inside the group. So as we are a spiritual house and a priesthood offering sacrifices, we have to start thinking about how we are living life together. And that life cannot happen if we hold on to sins addressed in 1 Peter 2, 1-3, to that destroy and undermine community. It's only going to be possible as we love like Christ loves. Embracing this actually affects the purpose of the church as brothers and sisters. So does culture shape our church? Absolutely. And and we speak into that culture and sometimes we engage the culture, sometimes by being countercultural. But we do not let cultural set the agenda for the church. The culture does not get to say this is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is set by Jesus Christ himself. Quickly now, verse 6. Because cause why does that even matter? What's the big deal? Why can't I just keep living my life independently, choosing my friends outside of this somewhat awkward group that gathers with me on Sunday so my greater friends are going to be outside? Why can't I just keep living independently and letting Sunday simply be my contact with church people? Here's why. Because we'll never accomplish mission if that's our mindset. We'll never learn how to love as Christ loved as long as we are hyperly selective. Selective. Matter of fact, our love will distort into what the Pharisees did. Jesus says, you love only because they love you. Why does this matter? Because we are on mission together. Look at verse six. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's our mission. To proclaim the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. How else? What other place on earth? What other house? What other spiritual building is going to is going to announce that news? It's interesting that Peter is going to contrast now shame and honor. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, they're being shamed right now for following Christ. In Asia Minor, they're being persecuted and families are being killed during Peter's time. And and in our day, it is becoming more and more of a shame to proclaim an exclusive message that there is one way and his name is Jesus Christ. J.H. Eliot comments on this. Peter's readers were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean Discredit and shame the believers as social and moral deviants, endangering the common good. This procedure of public shaming was employed as a means of social control with the aim of pressuring the minority community to conform to conventional values and standards of conduct. It came with a societal shame. But Peter's going to lift their eyes. Remember, present suffering, future glory, faith in future realities. So he said... Yes, but you're not going to be ashamed when you place your faith in Him. Look at verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Folks, to reject Christ is to trip over him and fall permanently unbelief is their disobedience jesus came preaching repent and believe and people who say no trip over the same stone that is providing and creating a new humanity a new building Why do they do that? Verse 8, they disobey the Word. They reject the Gospel message. That's how Peter uses it throughout the letter. And then he adds this, as they were destined to do. See, when God set the cornerstone, He knew there would be two consequential outcomes. Acceptance and honor. Rejection and ultimate shame. In conclusion, look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Everything that used to describe Israel, the church now is to a greater degree. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's quoting verses that I'll go all the way back into Exodus that capture the Exodus out of Egypt where God calls them and makes them a nation. And now he's saying you are a new nation in Christ with the cornerstone set. You have become a spiritual house, a living stone. You are a new nation. And why does he do that? So that we can praise his virtues, his qualities, his excellencies. Two closing thoughts. How are we to accomplish then the purpose of a stone as living stones? How, how then are we supposed to do that? Like newborn infants, desire Christ. As newborn infants, that is our singular desire so that we put away all malice, all hypocrisy, all slander. Not only like newborn infants, but like living stones, connected to a cornerstone. So in this community, and this is something I'm going to ask for here for prayer at the end. um, In this community, we receive spiritual instruction and rebuke and fellowship and guidance from fellow believers. In this community, we contribute with our giftedness to the building up of the body as we remain on mission. In this community, we dedicate ourselves to praying for one another, the salvation of all people and those who are in leadership over us. That makes us distinct. That makes us exiles. In this community, we choose to love as Christ loves. Not as hypocrites love. Not as the Pharisees love. But we choose to love unconditionally and sacrificially. Which means we will lovingly not tolerate backbiting we will lovingly expose at least individually gossip and slander and malice if we're going to be a building a living building that reflects the living cornerstone that's how we live in community with each other In this community, we engage in proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which is one of our essentials, proclaiming Jesus in word and action from our neighborhood to the nations. But that can only be done by people who accurately reflect him.